In their own words, is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you. What I saw music as was a very community-led, driven, focused thing. The notion of it being something that now you later on, you go make money and you do it, that wasn't even something I saw. In Africa, I just saw it as part of a community-led, focused thing. Welcome to the In Their Own Words podcast. Conversations and interviews with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. This episode, we feature Michael Mowenso, band leader and Emmy Award-winning creator, curator, and creative artist. He's worked with everyone from James Brown to Wynton Marsalis, and today he's with Penn State music education professor emeritus, Dr. Tony Leach. I would like to introduce our guest, Michael Mowenso, who's based in New York City, and along with his group called The Shakes, are doing just that, having profound impact on many aspects of American music. Michael, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so Would much. Would you take a few minutes to talk about life in Sierra Leone? Because that's an important part of the narrative that eventually gets you to America. Well, and, and so wonderful to be with you and, and, and to connect with you and an honor to speak to you today about um, music and the effect it's had on my life and also Africa. Uh, being born in Sierra Leone in Freetown, as I always say, is an incredible blessing because it allowed me to uh, have another lens of the world, especially uh, that I could have been born um, in England, but I was very lucky that my mother is half Nigerian, half Sierra Leone. My father was half South African, half Zambian. And they met in London in the early 80s uh, and had a relationship that then evolved with me being um, happening. And sadly, uh, my father's mother, who was South African, Zulu, uh, and his father, Webster Mwenso, was Zambian from Lusaka. But sadly, uh, you know, my father's mother was dying, so, so he had to go back to Lusaka to go to the funeral. So my grandmother, Christiana Latiluwa Smythe, who is my mother's mother from Sierra Leone, she said, have the child and come over here and, and have it in Freetown. And, you know, we lived in Freetown uh, for about one or two years uh, after I was born. But really, most of my fundamental Africanness comes from being really uh, a West African Nigerian boy. That really was the main influence of the Africanness that I experienced within the culture that I was brought up in, particularly that we moved to Ibadan and Lagos uh, after I was born, after one or two years after I was born. So I really was raised with the Nigerian Yoruba culture and also Ghanaian culture because my grandmother, before she married my maternal grandfather, Victor Louis-Biesson, she was actually married to Joseph Ankara, Joseph Ankara being the president of Ghana after Kwame Nkrumah, not the greatest person because he was the person that could with the CIA to get Kwame Nkrumah out, the great African independent leader. But she was married to him, an abusive man, which thus she left her three children behind in Accra and then met my grandfather, Victor Elouabiesson. So really, uh, there's Sierra Leone, but there's Nigeria fundamentally, and then there's a little bit of Ghana 
too. And that allowed me to really have a very fluid vibration of my Africanness. Uh, sadly, not so much the other side, Zambian and South African, because uh, my father left before I was born and I wasn't really had, didn't have the ability to really have a relationship with him. So really, I'm still searching for more of the Zambian, but I carry his name and I carry uh, his truth of who I am. So we moved to London because my mother married an Englishman uh, called Roger Harrington. And that changed life fundamentally, and that put me on this journey of this amazing life. Sadly, the man she married, Roger Harrington, died in a car crash. Once we got to London, my mother was driving. I was inside. That was a lot to this day to see my mom carry the fact that she was driving the car that killed her husband. Um... And that changed life. Trauma is a deep thing. It can, it can also be great for your future. So uh, there was a man before I was born called Thomas Blofeld, who was an Englishman, who was really becomes this amazing figure in our lives because when Roger tragically dies in that car crash, this gentleman, Thomas Blofeld, comes back into our life. He was a maths teacher, a uh, man in his 50s, single white man. And he became not intimate with my mother, but really a father figure of a, of a sort, and he was the person that really starts to bring a lot of this African black diasporic music, jazz, funk, soul, because he's a lover of this music himself. Uh, he really starts to now and then take me to see Mavis Staples, take me to see Marion Makeba, take me to see Hugh Masekela when they would come to London, and would take my mother too. Sadly, a year and a bit after Roger died, my mother, one day, the police came and she was taken to jail and she was put in an immigration detention center. And she was there for eight months. And Thomas, this amazing guy, took it upon himself to, to look after me in this transition. Sadly, my mother was eight months later deported back to Nigeria, Lagos, and I started to live with this man, Thomas Blofield. And then music really became the captivity of my freedom and my healing and has brought me in front of you today. Wow, what a what an amazing episode! Yes, in my own my own journey, I remember probably when I was two or three years old, my mom playing the piano. Yeah, and I asked her. I know when I was about three years old or so, could I play the piano? Yeah, and she says, "Boy, you're too young." Mm. And so that was fine, mm-hmm. but I kept hearing the music. And until I was about seven, I stopped asking if I could learn to play the piano. And she says, oh, I think he's serious. Mm. And everything changed when uh, she allowed me to begin to study piano. Well, is there anything that you remember, aside from your time in England, in London in Mm. particular, prior to Mm. London, from those early, early years that either you have retained Mm. or just a point of reference Mm, mm, as far as mm, your oral mm. soundscape is concerned. Music was very different in how it was placed within the culture uh, of the community of Africa that I saw. It was not really something that was 
dealt with a capitalistic thought of how we deal with music in a sense of hustling and, and, and using it to, to pay the bills and trying to get gigs. It was community-led. It was, music was for funerals. Music was for ancestral commitment. Music was for birthday celebrations. Everyone in the village was a musician. So it was more that I saw music I didn't have an understanding of music in that way because it was more communal. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until now, as you say, coming to London, but I, then it changed. But what I saw music as was a very community-led, driven, focused thing. The notion of it being something that now you later on, you go and make money and you do it, that wasn't even something I saw. In Africa, I just saw it as part of a community-led, focused thing. And that, of course, was traditional African music, whether it was Nigerian music, whether it was Ghanaian music, high life music, whether it was Zouk music. It was all something that I was seeing within the community. Mm -hmm. Once your mother was uh, taken back to Nigeria, to Nigeria once we got and London. you remained yeah. in London for a little bit, yeah. at some point you reconnected with your mom. Well, you know, after there's the period of Thomas Blofield, the gentleman that looks after me and opens my eyes a lot to music, you know, in this way, black music. Then there's Auntie Ronky and Uncle Jomo, who were these two older African people. Who One was my mother's older cousin, the, the, the daughter of my grandfather's brother. Um, and they were older African people in their 50s, one Nigerian, one Ghanaian. And this is another place where a whole other notion of music comes in because they belong to this very unique African judo-Christian religious organization, which was created in Nigeria, which was all basically English and Nigerian songs, which was all mostly a cappella and foot stomping and mm based in a very African choral vibe, mm -hmm. energy, mm -hmm. uh, and taught us voicings through a cappella, choral vibrations, but also learning the art of singing without no instruments. So that was now from learning all this African diasporic music, the blues and the jazz and doing that, and now going to Auntie Ronky and Uncle Jomo, there was another schooling of sort that I got in this now very unique maybe cultish, religious African organization that had a different way of dealing with music. Wow. Are there retentions mm. today from that period? Yeah, very okay. much. Any of the African influence you hear mm -hmm. in the shakes is definitely coming from that choral Nigerian, South African uh, a cappella way of how they deal with harmony. You know, bass-driven led rhythms like stuff like that, and they start when you start on top of it. So really, it it was um, it was a blessing because that's really where I got the Africanness from of my musicality. Excellent. In the England. Going to the African church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that brings up a whole nother notion. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a church kid. My dad yes. was a pastor. My mom was a church musician. Yes. And so I knew no other life, which was interesting, on reflection. And uh, mother would rehearse sometimes. The choir would come to our home or soloists would come to the home. And she would bundle me up with my brother Darnell, who's a year younger, and take us with her mm. to all these choir rehearsals 
because she was in four different churches, a different church every Sunday, yeah. until my dad began pastoring back in 1960. But I remember the sound mm. of that women's choir mm. at a Baptist church in, in D.C. I remember the sound of the very first pipe organ that I heard because I, those vibrations just went through my little body. Yeah. And um, to distinguish, we didn't have then what we now call contemporary gospel music. Yes. We just had gospel music. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, some of it was a cappella. A lot of it was accompanied, but always timely, always energized, yes. always uh, inviting yes. others, not only to listen, but as you shared earlier, to participate in the black church in America, we don't have a time when music is happening that people aren't responding. Mm. We listen with our mind, our body, our feet. Mm -hmm. We cry. We throw our hands up. Tears will drop. Yeah. We dance. Yeah. All, all those manifestations that uh, are cultural mm -hmm. because everyone does not respond that way. We have that European aesthetic. And uh, I wonder, from that standpoint, especially from your time in London, and we keep going back to that because this platform is providing a narrative, an informed narrative for our listeners. When you consider your experience with the African congregation in London, yes. but you're also around all these wonderful institutions with others, whether you were invited in, yeah. whether you knew you could go in, and then what you heard when you got in there. You know, the trauma was a blessing because I was getting this unique vibe of blackness. There's this vibe now with Tom where I'm meeting the James Browns and the B.B. King and the Ray Charles and getting all that black music. Then there's Auntie Ronkey and Uncle Jomo who are giving me the Africanness and hitting all that kind of African choral vibe. Mm -hmm. And then there's boarding school where you're in the choir and you're learning Charles Wesley hymns and you're understanding that tradition of, of, of hymn, hymn, Charles, you know, English hymns and stuff like that. So I really got, when I think about it now, the locations and the trauma was really the education. Yes. Yes. You know, to understand Charles Wesley kind of harmony and understand how he writes hymns and understand that and understand the choral vibe of the Africanness and understand all the funkiness. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. Very good. Were you a soccer kid? Were you, what, what are the things were you doing when you were not listening to or involved in music? I was the artistic, creative, no sports, just the music. <laughs> Just the music, just the music. <laughs> Boarding school's forcing you to do the cricket. You have to do it. Boarding school's forcing you to go out in the rain, in the snow, in the sleet, and play the horrible rugby. You're doing it. Yes, cross country, you're good at it, Michael, and you do you win the awards and the competitions. But all I want to listen to is Benjamin Britten and Edward Elgar and Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> and James Brown and Louis Armstrong and Sister Rosetta Farb and Claude Ward, and I'm good. And don't take me out to do no gym stuff. <laughs> Wow. So you were a rebel at an early yeah. age the, with the, a cause. The 11 music, that's what I think. I'm, I know I'm doing this, and I love it, and I, that's what I want to do. Yeah. That's good. That's real good. What about your peers? Uh, how did they feel 
when they recognized that you had this musical ability? Well, loneliness was a main factor because you know when you're when you're young and you're that one kid who's hearing the world differently and understanding it's different, you, you realize okay, the peers ain't happening. So all I wanted to be around is older people. Mm. You know that vibe. We just want to be around the older people because we realize the older people are fun, and that's actually where the fun's at. And then you know the peers don't get that you're different and you're unique, and they don't know who James Brown is, and they're not understanding Louis Armstrong, and it's like ain't happening. It's like it's lonely. So let me just be with the older people. <laughs> so I never really had peers. Ah. It was always older people. Okay. And that has really stayed in my life. I think it's still younger people. The only ones I really hang with are younger and older than me. You know, so um, because peers, when you're listening to, you know, Benjamin Britten and then James Brown and you're listening to that on your Walkman and they're listening to the hip hop and God bless them. I love the hip hop culture. Beautiful, beautiful. You ain't fitting in. You're not fitting in. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you realize that you're on this journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When did the move to America mm. occur? Okay. Well, you know, you're from ages to 11 to 16. I'm very lucky I've, because I say to you why. Because I'm stalking the BB King. I'm leaving school at 3 p.m. to write the sound, to write the sick notes and go to the Ray Charles sound check and pretend I'm in the band because I play trombone and go there with a big, big suit and then he thinks I'm in the band, you know, the guy on the backstage door and I go in. So that's all happening. I'm, I mean, every great African diasporic musician who's still alive between 1995, 96, who's still alive. And that means Betty Carter's still alive. That means, you know, Mavis Staples is here. You know, that means B.B. King's here. I'm seeing all of them. And then... I see Wynton Marcellus, who becomes the next. James Brown's the big one. James Brown, you fall in love with James Brown at 12. You stalk him for three years. You get to meet him. You go on stage with him. He changes your life. And you, every time he comes to England, he lets you have a little five minutes in the show. So that's your big one. And then 16, 17, the jazz really, you realize that, okay, I know this funk. I know this soul. I know this blues. But if I don't learn more about this jazz one, I can see this is another one of the deep black things that if you don't have an understanding in your reflection, it's going to be something that's missing. I'm seeing what the jazz does in your holisticness of your musicianship. Mm -hmm. Like the jazz musicians are really the ones that figured out. So, and then Winton comes and you see him and you're like, so this is the dude. Okay, so this is the deepest black young dude who's changing the culture and making these people see what this jazz music is. I got to find him. So he comes to London, stalk him the same way, um, attract his attention, develop a relationship with him, start coming to New York from like 18, 19, get the blessing to hang with him in his house, see his early vibrations of how he's building the next part of Jazz at Lincoln Center in Columbus Circle, that transition of him taking this black culture and black music and saying, I'm going to raise 400 million and create a place like Jazz at Lincoln Center. So I'm around him seeing all that. I develop, I start now working at this great jazz club called Ronnie Scott's in London, which is the premier jazz club where all the great black musicians come and play. I start hosting and creating a jam session there that develops into like a, a whole week of bookings that I book of musicians, which becomes a community, which eventually Winton comes to play on his own with his group, sees this great vibe that's happening, then says, Michael, we co you come into New York and you work in a jazz in the gazelle. Okay. So that's how we get there. Wow. And Winton is the greatest, 
you know, in a sense that he was ready to be a father. He was ready to 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 say, "I love you. I'm bringing you over." And he brings me over with the intention to create an environment for musicians to be at Jazz and Lincoln Center, mm. particularly young musicians. So he allows me to learn from him uh, of how to curate, how, because, you know, Witten figured out something deep. How do we take this jazz music and create themes around it so that it can be something that people can come and see and we can put it all over the world? How do we create an ancestral belief of honoring the Louis Armstrong, the Duke Kennington, play their music and get these people to come and see it? So that education of learning that philosophy from him, like how we deal, how do we take this ancestral music and keep on creating ways that people are excited by it, where we honor Duke Kennington, we honor these black people about their greatness and we put it in the world. So I was learning from him in that way. And it was a great education. And thus his ability to uh, enlighten my life allowed me then to have the energy to create another environment from Ronnie Scott's to Jazz and Lincoln Center, which became an attraction for young musicians and people like Jonathan Baptiste and the Cecile McLaurin Salvance, all these great musicians, they started developing their musicianship there. And that created this great hub for a lot of great musicians to learn from. And thus, out of that became Wenzel and the Shakes. And then that's how that next part happens. Once leaving Jazz and Lincoln Center, then it's now, how do we create this band of all that musical history that you heard living with Tom, the James Brown, the Reva Franklin, the Auntie Ronke. Now, how do you put it in a sound in a band and put yourself, in, put yourself in a world and do it? Yeah, yeah. When I think about the musical mentors in my life, several of whom are still living, mm. which is a blessing. That's deep. It's profound. It's life-changing. Uh, things that were either shared with me or things that they were able to do at the piano, the organ, vocally. And um, to see it happening in real time yeah. as opposed to a recording, mm -hmm. or into, but to be physically present, as you have been mm. um, throughout your life, you know, Standing in the wings of the stage. Yes. Looking. Stalking. Listening. As you said, stalking. I love it. I love it. You can write a book on that. You Just know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Get to know the band first before you know the star. Yes. Yes. All that. Um, are there things that you think about as you consider aspects of your creativity moving forward? Because you got one foot in the past, mm. and a knee in the future. Wow. And in between the past and the future, we find you. Oh, thank you. Doing what you do every day. Mm. What are you retaining? What are you carrying from those mentoring moments? Many things. From James Brown, hmm? you say, okay, what do you learn from James Brown? You learn belief. You learn... Uh, self-determination. Okay. You learn uh, on the spiritual nature that. Uh, musically, you learn process of freedom and creativity. Like, he taught me, and the reference he has with the, with the shakes is tightness, finesse, style, creative freedom, band structure, mm. presentation, that side of music. From then... 
Um, at Winton, mm -hmm. you learn a holisticness of black music, that all of that black root music, the gospel, the blues, the jazz, the funk, the soul, is a continuum. And it's a philosophy, and it's a body of work, and it's a, it's a, it has values and an ideology that not only is a spiritual component of listening to all that black root music, the gospel, the blues, the funk, the soul, the jazz, the country music, also because it comes from black people too, but also the values in all, that, in all those styles of music, you know, the philosophies of all those great artists, what Thomas Dorsey is saying, the continuing to James Cleveland, what, what is the difference of how Clark Ward sings and Inez Andrews, and how does Joe Legon with the Mike Clouds of Joy sing just with guitar and, and vocals, and how's it connected to African music? All those things, and what's the importance of Duke Ellington understanding early African, early black music? And so, you know, I think from Winton it was understand all the values of the black music. Mm -hmm. So that if you create something, you're creating a world of blackness. So definitely those particular two, mm -hmm. Brown, and Marcellus definitely have a deep reflection on that side of things. Mm -hmm. Who's stalking you? Well, I've been lucky that I think the shakes, when I look at it now, it has become a way that musicians have been with us and have, um, we've all learned together and um, some of them go off and do their own thing. So there's a hub that was created with the shakes and, and people have bit come on the train when, when they want to be, you know, close to each other. And so I would say like that, you know, there's, um, and, there's and, and it's deep. There's musicians that go through in and out the band, younger musicians that we start to see more at concerts. You know, there's, there's even bass player that we have now, Nolan Nwuchuku, uh, Nigerian, Florida-based a uh, wonderful young 23-year-old mm. that has been checking us out since he was 18, watching YouTube videos. And now he's playing with us now and then. So there's that type of relationship that we're having now. For drummer that you're going to see with us this week, Armad Johnson, he started looking at videos of us on Instagram three years ago, and now he's in the band. So it's that type of energy now that we're getting. Interesting. Um how technology That's what's ha yeah. has... Um, it's a different stalking now. Yeah, well, and, and the deal is, until they tell you, yeah. this is how I discovered you. Or as I yes. said, you know, literally. Oh, oh my, yeah, then one, there's one called TJ, great drummer. He, was, he started playing with us. We didn't even know the stories. And then one day he says, come here, I got to tell you something. And I was like, what are you going to tell me? He say, he say, you know, I was watching the YouTube videos years ago, and I used to watch and be like, I hope one day I play with that band. And then I was like, what? So, yeah. Yes. 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 What advice would you give to music educators, the teachers, who are in the classroom day in, day out, conducting, teaching general music, doing music tech stuff, whatever, elementary through, through here we are at Penn State? What you tell them? What I would express is that is for us to uncondition ourselves and, and eradicate ourselves from... Sadly, the way Western philosophy and ideology has taken the values of music, African diasporic music, black people, mm -hmm. and how the culture of black people created a unique way of teaching music. Mm -hmm. 
through messages, through coded messages, mm -hmm. through ancestral ways of keeping it through generations. Look at those philosophies. Study those philosophies in those times of how black people really dealt with music. Check the community factor of, of music. See how you teach it differently. Mm -hmm. You know, check what, how black people dealt with music as a spirit. And mm -hmm. that's what I would say to music educators. And don't be blinded by the Western way of thought. Excellent, I really appreciate that. Is your mom still alive? She is, she is. She's she's 61 years old now. She's um, young. She's young. I, I pray to my grandmother every day to, to make her life longer. She lives in London, Wilson Green. She has a nice, she, well, she, she, she won't let me say this. She has a nice uh, Kurdish uh, man that is her kind of compadre, partner, and, and he looks after her. So being her only child, I don't have to be so, so so damp with anxiety and worry that, that I don't see her enough because this man, he provides some balance in her life. But she's doing good. She's doing good. She, um, I will hopefully see her this year because uh, we've been very blessed that we're going to Europe after a few years with the band to do a little thing. So I'm going to go and visit her and spend some time with her. But what she does she think about her child who has become this... Icon. No, no, no. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, yeah, no, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just calling one you One day, but... Um, I'm not saying that that's bad or good. No, no, no I mean, I pray that's one day. You, you know, um, that's how order, you pay your rent. In all the good ways. Yeah, in all the good ways. Um, I think she, you know, she puts things on my social media comments. And I told her the other day, I spoke to her on the phone. And, you know, our, our, our costumes have gotten, definitely, they've evolved since the early days of, of the band. When me and Jono, Jono was driving the bus and, you know, we didn't have any pennies to scrape together. We just were putting any kind of rags. But, and there was someone put a video of us like seven years ago. And we, we don't look the greatest. And then my mother, but they've gotten better. My mother wrote last week, she said, at least the clothes have gotten better. <laughs> <laughs> So she's 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 good and she 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 she's beautiful. She says so she's stalking you. She does because that's the way she kind of. If I don't speak to her like every week, uh -huh. that's a, she can also go on the Instagram and see what's you know. So as much as you don't see as much as you would love to, the new technology allows it to be closer now. You know. Yes. Because I'm remembering when it was she's in Nigeria. I'm with Tom. And she's phoning on the other line from Lagos, and it's so. <laughs> ain't no FaceTime. Can you imagine how different that would have been in that same situation? My mom was deported. If I would have had FaceTime and Zoom, and wow. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, technology. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Because I, I was, do. I was waiting for that once every two weeks phone call from Nigeria that costed fifty hundred <laughs> pounds. You know, when it, you know Tom would look at the bill like we only can do five minutes because the phone bills. Yeah, yeah. Where does the name The Shakes come from? You know, in every community, uh, if, if, if they're really trying to really do it, there should be things other than the thing they do. So, um, you know, we have a language, you know, that there's ways if you listen to us talk, we say certain words. You know, in the early years, prior to even New York, you know, me and my brothers, artists, actors, we would say the word shakes to talk about... Um, Hope we get into some shakes tonight, you know, and that would be go down to the club and dance to James Brown, and you know what I mean? It just would be a word we use. So then later it would just become a thing, the shakes. Oh, I got the shakes tonight. I got it would just, but it always meant something good. And then, you know, as we developed and as now 
the next part of the journey being in this country grew out of the jazz and the casino, you know, then we just said, let's call it Mwenso and the Shakes. Everyone's going to know what it means because everyone hears us say it. So that's what it means. It means all good things and okay. it can be many things. As you think about your impact on aspects of American music, what are you hoping maybe that your impact will be, how it will be viewed? Well, I pray, you know, I pray. And I pray a lot to um, my grandmother, you know, and my ancestors, because I believe in ancestral belief. You know, it's not, you know, it's not just Jesus and God. There's your deceased grandmother that you could be praying to and they're ready to help you. So every day I pray that me and Jono with our, our organization, Electric Root, you know, Jono Gasparro, this beautiful man that came into my life 15, 14 years ago through Winton. Um, and we've developed this, you know, this organization called Electric Root. I just pray that it allows us to continue to highlight black music. I mm. pray that we become more of an energy where we are able to change the way people see black music, the way we talk about it, the way we feel. I pray that we become a power out here where many institutions are coming to us to help them understand black music more. I would love for my thoughts and my life to be more seen and heard uh, on a mass level so that it bec becomes a way of teaching black music through trauma, through healing. Uh, I pray for the success of my career as an artist, that my music will be a way of people listening to it, the songs that we've written, that it impacts the world. You know, I pray for my band, Wentzel and the Shakes, to be something that's known all over the world and, and creates a movement of people thinking differently about black music. So all those things. All those things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I say something on screen? Sure. And, and, and they know I'm being interviewed by him? Yeah. He, okay, I want to say something. This is really for me to express to Dr. Anthony Leach in a sense of um, me being a young black man and reading about him, getting to know him, speaking to him. I want to thank him uh, as a young black man for his commitment to this music, his dedication, his practice, his thoughts, his belief for a man of his age to continue to be out here, to aspire, to meet, to congratulate me, to honor me, to love me, to speak the things that he does. I thank him for all the people he has helped, all the people he has cultivated. I thank him for also him continuing to do this work. He doesn't have to do it. He wants to do it. He could have retired. He still is, but he's doing it. So I want to thank Dr. Anthony Leach for giving us the opportunity to not only know him, but also to open his heart. And so looking forward to being with him over these next few days for the opportunity of the magnificent nature of what his spirit does and how it inspires us to believe. So thank you, sir. If, if right now I'm trying not to miss capturing this one stories of yeah. people who are... 80 years old plus. Yeah. We've already missed a few yeah. last year. Ramsey Lewis. Yeah. Ramsey Lewis. Yeah, he went last year. We lost him. We missed him. him. And, we and we were, my choir was blessed to perform with him. Oh, he here. here. Wait, oh. Yes. But he's gone. He's gone. He's gone. But that pandemic wiped a few out. Yes. Like, they, it's like, oh, no. Yeah. 
we did because they couldn't go on the road and you could tell a lot of them that it was that that was keeping them shaking. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the In Their Own Words podcast. Interviews and conversations with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. Join us next time when we meet another young talent in the music world. Composer, conductor, educator, and music minister, Dante Ford. Black music is so expansive. So the fact that we relegate black music to gospel, it's like, well, that's a problem. Just like it's problematic that we relegate all black composers to spirituals and gospel, right? But it's like trying to to meet those needs and cover those balances so that there is repertoire out there and you can hear new voices and new contributions to the genres. I'm Charles Duma. Thanks for listening. In Their Own Words is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you.